Good morning and a warm welcome to you all to Ladywell Baptist Church and to our service of worship this Sunday morning. As we come to the beginning of our time of worship, we hear from Psalm 46 these words. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. As we come to worship, we come to worship a God who sits enthroned over all. And this is a huge encouragement to us. In so many ways, we recognize our lives are in great need of uh, oversight and of control, of guidance and leadership, that we ourselves are in need of salvation from our own sins, as well as from the sin that exists in this world. And we recognize, don't we, each week, just how incapable we are of doing any one of those things. And yet we have a God who comes and meets with us, and blesses us, and draws us into his presence, and enables us to worship him. And this is a great source of joy and encouragement for us. And yet also in that we recognize a God who is able to achieve all of these things is a God who is truly powerful indeed, powerful beyond anything else in all of creation. And such a God is Indeed, in many ways, a terrifying God to behold. There is nothing beyond his power. There is nothing he does not see or hear or understand. And it's right that we come into his presence with thanksgiving and joy, but also with reverence. As as the scriptures put it, with fear and with awe, that this is a truly mighty God that we come to worship This morning. And I want to encourage you to enter into our worship in our service this Lord's Day morning. So let's pray together that we would be gathered into His presence, that we would know Him as as we are known by Him, and we'd be able to worship Him in a manner that is fit for one so wonderful as He. So let's pray together. Our loving God, Heavenly Father, we come before you and we Lord, hear in your word just how wonderful, how mighty, how awesome a God you are. And Lord, we recognize our great need of you, our yearning, our craving for a God such as yourself, one who is able to lift us beyond uh, our own lives, as it were, the things that we can see and understand. Lord, you help us to understand ourselves and this whole world in a completely new way, in a fuller way. And so, Lord God, as we meet with you this morning, we do so with joy and with thanksgiving for all that you have done for each one of us. And we ask, Lord, that you would motivate our hearts to praise you from that great overflow of joy and thanksgiving. And yet, Heavenly Father, we also recognize that a God who is able to accomplish all that you have done in creation and in sending your Son to be our Savior and paying for our sins and reconciling us to you, Lord, you are a mighty God indeed. And so, Father, we ask that out of our reverence and our fear, you might come and receive our praise and worship, that we might know our place before you, that we wouldn't with hastiness, rush into your presence and and offer you something, anything, because we know we ought. But Lord, we might come considering deeply who we are and who you are 
and how worthy you are of all our praise, our adoration and thanks. Lord God, we ask that you would forgive us our sins of this past week and enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. And Heavenly Father, we pray for all of our fellowship, whether they are gathered in this time to celebrate your goodness to us or whether we are scattered and watching you all throughout the week or whether we are not able to watch or participate in the services at all. Father, we ask that our whole congregation would be gathered by your Spirit and by the truth of your word, and may be enabled to worship you and know your presence wherever we are. And Father, we ask that you would bless us richly as a result of knowing you, our God and Saviour. Heavenly Father, we ask all this in our Saviour Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen. Our reading today is from Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35, and we'll read the whole chapter, starting at verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terrored. A terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Alan Bacuth. God appeared to Jacob again and when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob no longer. Shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. They journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephra, Rachel went into labour, and she had hard labour. And when her labour was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. 
but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, the father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpha, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at the Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were a hundred and eighty years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Let's join together in prayer for our church and for our world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that as we come into your presence this morning, we do so in joy and with thanksgiving. And yet, Lord, we also come before you as intercessors, praying on behalf of one another, praying on behalf of our community here in Livingston, the community of Ladywell, and, Lord, praying on behalf of our world. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we would bring our fellowship before you and ask that you would bless us as a family together. Heavenly Father, you know the needs of our members. And in this time we come, we submit our church before you, and we ask that you would bless each of our members who has need at this time. And in this few moments of silence, Lord, we would lay those before you who need your touch, either of healing or of encouragement. Lord, we lay them before you now. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that Christ comes as a saviour for men and women, but not simply to save individuals, but to adopt us into a family. And Lord, we give you thanks for our congregation, a family adopted through Jesus' sacrifice, saved and set apart to glorify him in Ladywell here. Lord, we ask that as we go out into this coming week, that you would equip our little fellowship to serve you in this community way beyond uh, what we might consider possible. Heavenly Father, use our words, our actions, Lord, to transform this community, to share the good news of the gospel, that Christ has come to be a saviour to sinners, and so we might see lives transformed in this place. We thank you, Lord, for our community fridge and the way that we can connect with local people who are in great need. And yet, Lord, we ask that we would serve you beyond the simple handing out of food. Lord, that we would seek to give people the bread of life, 
Lord, bread that will satisfy them truly within and not simply sustain them for another day. Lord, that we might offer them the water that truly satisfies, Lord, that comes not from the tap, but comes from Christ himself, that they would drink of it once and be satisfied forever. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would move in Ladywell through your people here. And Lord, we ask that you would therefore equip us for service and lead us out into this week. Lord God, we pray for our world and ask that you would be with uh, the leaders of our nation, with Nicola Sturgeon and the, West, um, the Holyrood government and Boris Johnson and the Westminster government. Lord, we pray that you would lead them and guide them. Father, we ask that you would bless them as individuals with all of the stresses and the strains that they must endure. Lord, we ask that you would help them to persevere each and every day that they would have the energy and the clarity of thought necessary to lead these uh, great nations. Heavenly Father, we pray as well for our Queen and ask that you would be with her, that you would bless her at this time, that you would lead and guide her. And Heavenly Father, we pray for the people of our nation. Lord, we are going through the most uncertain of times and people are growing frustrated and impatient. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give the people of our nation a desire, Lord, to persevere through these times, that we would seek to have this coronavirus pandemic brought to an end quickly. And so, Lord, we ask that citizens might obey uh, where our government calls us to go, that we would, Lord, seek to, um, to obey the guidelines that are given, not uh, necessarily simply for our own sake, but for the sake of our neighbors. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help the people of our nation to meet the needs of those around who cannot fend for themselves, Lord. And Father, we pray for the church in the UK. Lord, we ask that your people across this country would speak for those who have no voice, would serve those who are not able to serve themselves. And so, Father, might bless this nation through its presence. Heavenly Father, more than anything else, we ask that the church in the UK would share the good news, the hope of the gospel. And Father, we pray for our nation that was once so clearly defined by your word that it may return to that. And Father, submit to you as their Lord. Heavenly Father, we come and present our church, and our nation before you, and ask that you might bless both in submission to you. Heavenly Father, we ask all this this morning, not in our own worthiness or because of our own power. For, Lord, we recognize there is nothing in us that would cause you to even listen to our prayers. Never mind respond. Lord, we come before you as brothers and sisters of Christ, as those whom he has purchased and snatched away from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into his own kingdom. Lord, it is in the name of Jesus that we come and ask for in his name you will hear us and you will respond. And so, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Over this past week or so, you'll have no doubt seen in the news that there is yet more turmoil going on in the United States politically. That seems to be the ground state of being in the United States at the moment. However, uh, of the last couple of weeks, 
you'll have no doubt heard of both the death of the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who served on the Supreme Court in the United States for a great many years, and the move by Donald Trump to appoint her replacement, as is his right as the incumbent president. There's much scandal because obviously an election is coming up at the, um, at the end of this year, and so it's felt that it's not right for him to, uh, to appoint someone so close to the end of his time in office, and uh, a scandal has erupted as uh, the two political sides, Republicans and Democrats, have gone back and forth on this issue, completely ignoring everything they said uh, in 2016 and uh, the, the views that they expressed then. But in the appointment of this individual that uh, President Trump is putting forward, we find, as is so often the case, that their lives are being scrutinized. This uh, woman is um, a a Catholic. I have no real knowledge of her or uh, the, the you know, authenticity, the integrity of her faith, but it is certainly being put forward that she is a woman of faith. And the interesting thing, as is so often the case, is that she is scrutinized as a Christian woman in terms of what she believes about things like the origins of life, about, um, about abortion, about same-sex marriage, all of these um, significant issues um, that are, are so much a part of the political debate in the United States and what will her Christian faith have to say about these things given the huge number of Americans who are not Christians and who won't share her views on them. Now whether you are up to date with this or not it doesn't really matter. The interesting thing is that I suspect this young woman when she started out uh, her career probably didn't really think very much about how much it would cost her to identify as a Christian. And now that she has come to be the nomination for the Supreme Court, this seems to be one of the only things that matters. In fact, a satirical comment made uh, by a publication in the United States um, detailed the, the idea that this was a scandal, that a Christian woman might believe Christian things. And yet this is the world we live in. It is a scandal to our society that Christians would believe things that the Bible says, Christian things, and might order their lives on it. And just as this uh, woman who has been put forward for the Supreme Court perhaps didn't consider what it would cost her to identify as a Christian, it's right for us perhaps to, to recognize that we have perhaps not always considered the cost of what it means for us to say, I am a follower of Jesus. And in our passage this morning, it is very clear in going through chapters 34, 35, and 36 of Genesis that there is a tremendous cost to being identified as a follower, a worshiper of God. This is something that's carried through into the New Testament that Jesus himself says to those who would come after him. In Luke chapter 14, we find Jesus encouraging those who would follow him to really deeply consider the cost of being one of his disciples. For people will treat them differently. People will hate them as they hate Jesus, revile them as they revile Jesus, reject them as they reject Jesus, simply because of their connection with him. Do they consider that? Do they consider the sacrifices they will have to make simply in order to follow in his way? They won't 
perhaps be able to have all of the things that the people of the world around them are able to enjoy, that the pleasures of of sin and self-satisfaction, they simply won't be able to have those things if they want to follow Christ. Do they consider that cost? And are they asking, do I really want this kind of life? Jesus would have us ask that same question today. And this passage in Genesis Uh, chapters 34, 35, and 36, certainly encourage us to ask the question, do we count the cost of being God's people? As we come to chapter 34, we find uh, that part of the cost of being God's people is that we must be conformed to the image of of God's people. And reading into the New Testament, we are called to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what it means to worship and follow and obey God. Do we consider the cost of being conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior? Looking back over chapter 34 in Genesis, we read of this truly terrible, horrible situation with Dinah, Jacob's daughter, with uh, Leah. This woman is out on her own and she encounters this man called Shechem, the son of Hamor, who um, doesn't just meet her and exchange pleasantries with her. We find that um, he takes her and almost unbelievably in this passage, he rapes her. Now this um, in the ancient world is part of what unfortunately happened with some degree of regularity. Shechem is doing what a lot of people have done because he actually likes Dinah. And it's hard for us to hear that and to reconcile that event with that sentiment. And yet we find what he wants to do is marry this woman whom he believes he doesn't have any chance of marrying. And so by forcibly coming and uh, and lying with her, as the passage puts it, we find that he is making sure she must marry him because no other man will marry her now, that she has been defiled by this man. And the most astonishing thing of all is when Jacob hears of this terrible event that has befallen his own daughter, he does nothing. He simply waits We read in the passage that he waits till his sons come home from the fields before he does anything. And I wonder if he is motivated by fear. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what the repercussions will be of standing up for his own daughter and defending her honor with this this family, with this young man. And so he waits and acts when backup arrives. Whatever the reason for his holding back, are, we find that Simeon and Levi are very quick to get together and hatch a plan. The purpose of their plan is to avenge uh, their sister's honor. And so they propose to Hamor and Shechem, his son, that the marriage will go ahead, but there is one condition. It is customary in Jacob's family for all of the men to be circumcised, to be part of this household. And certainly Hamor and Shechem are expecting that they will be um, incorporated, as it were, into the household of Jacob. And their secret desire is that they will be able to, to lay hold of all of the riches and wealth and power that goes with that family connection. And so hungry are they for that wealth, that influence and power that they um, that they hear Simeon and Levi's words and recognize that if they want this to work, they're going to have to be circumcised, them and all the men in their household, and they do it. 
they're willing to make that sacrifice for what's on offer. And what happens afterwards is the avenging of Dinah. Simeon and Levi come back to the village and slaughter all the men while they are in agony and defenseless. They plunder everything that belonged to Hamor, including all the women and children. They just assume, assimilate the whole household into their own. And what's shocking here is that Simeon and Levi suggested to Hamor that he should adopt circumcision not as a sign that he's become part of the family of God, but as a sign that they are joining his people. As Donald Barnhouse put it, the sign of the covenant was appropriated by Shechem to gratify his lust, by Hamor to increase his cattle, and by the sons of Jacob as a cover for murder. The sons of Jacob had taken what God had given as a holy religious sign and used it for their own wicked ends. They appealed to greed and to lust and used the covenant sign of God as a means of getting their own desire, their anger, and having it worked out. Jacob is unwilling to stand up for his family and worries now in a worse situation that all of the local tribes and families who might not be strong enough to oppose him individually will all now unite because they've seen the way his family behaves. And so he lives in fear at what has been done. Simeon and Levi were using the methods of the world for their own end, uh, for revenge. We find the whole approach of the family of Jacob is now, take what you want, use anything, nothing is holy, nothing is sacred, get what you want, that is the only aim. So quickly the family of God has fallen away from the way that he would have them go. They are not conforming themselves to the pattern that God would have for his own children. And they will have to answer for that. And at the end of Genesis, we find that Jacob discounts his sons from the, the, the family line of the firstborn, as it were, the, the one through whom the seed of the woman will come, if we remember the, the storyline of Genesis, and salvation will enter into the world. We find that Reuben uh, sleeps with one of his father's concubines, and so he is uh, discounted, and we find now that Simeon and Levi are also discounted, making Judah the next in line to carry on uh, the family line. And we find that this is carried through into the New Testament, that Jesus is described as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, not the firstborn of Jacob's sons, but uh, the, the son who is left after these other elder brothers are discounted through their truly appalling actions. And it's a great challenge for us to hear these words. So much of this story appalls us in so many ways. And the writer of Scripture is, is clear. Moses is clear that none of this, none of it is good. The whole circumstance is awful. And yet God is in the midst of it all using these circumstances to bring about his plans and his purposes. The challenge for us as Christians is that we must not use the blessings God has given us to further our own ends for all that God is in control and will work out his plans. We don't get to behave just however we want in the knowledge that, well, God will just figure everything out in the end. I just look after myself and my own and that will be enough. 
in the end, we find that we are called to be separate from the world, not to be like everyone else. The deceitfulness of Hamor, the appalling actions of Shechem are mirrored by the actions of Simeon and Levi. They're no better than the people around them. And this is a struggle that Israel has all throughout its history. They are no better than the Canaanites. They're no better than uh, the nations around in Syria and in Edom and Moab and Egypt and Babylon. And we find God dealing with them harshly as a result of that. Our call is always to be separate from the world for all that we will live in it and to be constantly about the work of looking more and more like Christ, of becoming more and more like Christ, which will make us look more and more different from the world around us. We're not expected to, at every moment, have to stand up in the street and yell out to all who gather that we are different, that we are followers of Jesus, and you need to be also, although if you want to do that, then you go right ahead and do that. But we are expected through everything, through the words that we speak, through the thoughts that we have, the actions that we, um, that we live out, to testify to our separateness, to our different nature. Because we have been transformed by God and made his people. And so when we embrace the faith scripture tells us about, it will make us different to the world. And it will make us look different to the world in a way that cannot be confused. For all that we will all get up in the morning and go to work, take our kids to school see our family at the weekend, engage in hobbies and other leisure activities. We will do all of those things just like everybody else does. However, the way that we engage and the things that we do and say and think will be different. I had to take a train journey over this past week uh, up to Linlithgow and in order to do that I had to get on the train at Livingston South and go into Haymarket and then change trains and get back out to Linlithgow. And as part of that journey, I bought a ticket at uh, Linlithgow South Station when I arrived. And I got onto the train when it arrived and was never asked to show anybody my ticket. I never needed to do anything with my ticket. I got all the way into Haymarket and then all the way back out to Linlithgow. and never once had to prove to anyone that I had actually paid. If I had so chosen, I could have got on the train and instead of paying the £9 fare to get to Linlithgow, I could have had the journey for free. And there was, I have to confess, a tiny little moment of frustration in my life when I got off the, the, the train at the stop at Linlithgow and thought I could have had that whole thing for free. And yet very quickly, there was a, just this thought came through my mind, but you're a Christian. You don't get... To, to take a service from somebody and not pay for it. You don't get to have things for free that you ought to pay for because you act with integrity, particularly when no one sees you. And it was something that really challenged me, not because of my great faithfulness to God and buying a train ticket, but because of that momentary little flash of thought in my mind that says, you shouldn't have bought that ticket. You should have had that for free. No one would have noticed. No one would have seen and I was so frustrated at myself that that was even a consideration on my mind. Because I am now being conformed to the image of Christ. This is not Christ's way. And so repentance came and an opportunity to reflect on it, uh, which resulted in, in my growth and in my encouragement. 
If our views are no different to our neighbors, if our language is no different to the average guy in the street, if our parenting or grandparenting is just the same as everyone else's, then we must ask, are we engaging our faith in every area of life? Are we bringing Christ to bear on everything we do and say and think? And if we're not, do we love him as we say we do? Do we follow him as we say we do? Does he mean what we say he means to each one of us? This is no cause for us to to doubt that we're Christians. But it is cause for us to seriously consider to repent and ask that Christ might strengthen us, build us up and then send us back out to try all over again. We are called to live out our faith with fear and trembling, aren't we? There's an expectation that we will walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel with which we have been saved. And that means there will be a cost to our faith. We can't be like everyone else. And as a result, we will no doubt be opposed and reviled by the people in our world. But the cost of being saved by Christ and being changed to look just like him is worth it. For it is the only way that we can live if we are to be saved from our sins. We must be conformed to the image of Christ. We must be connected to Christ constantly. And we see this worked out in chapter 35 of Genesis. After the Dinah incident has been dealt with, we see that God appears to Jacob for the last time. Ligon Duncan notes that there are three uh, communions with God, as it were, in this passage, and three funerals in uh, chapter 35. And the three times that God meets with Jacob, he gives him the strength to endure through these three encounters with grief and with loss. Jacob runs into difficulty in chapter 34 and God calls him to go to Bethel, the place where he's met with Jacob before on the run from problems as he fled from Esau out of the promised land. And Jacob gladly goes and names the place Bethel, that is the house of God, and puts an altar there called God, the house of God, El Bethel. And it's there that Jacob is again called Israel. God's reminding him, you are not the cheater, the liar, the deceiver, the worldly one. You are the one who strives with me for my blessing, that labors hard, that won't let go until you're blessed, until you know communion with me. The promises made to Abraham and Isaac are repeated here as well to reinforce the role that Jacob, that Israel has in the salvation of a people for God's glory and for the defeat of sin that will come through his son, ultimately the son Judah, um, that will give rise to Christ. And all of this serves to establish Jacob in his walk with the Lord to ensure that he keeps going the right way after some pretty shoddy and shabby affairs in his life. Even when he loses his mother's closest servant, Rebecca has presumably um, died already. She isn't mentioned again apart from a note later in chapter 49 that she's buried alongside Isaac in the same tomb. Uh, So this trusted retainer who has been a major source of stability in the, the household of Jacob dies and is given an honored burial and then Rachel dies. The woman who Jacob has loved more than any other, who he he yearned for and served for 14 years in order to get to marry, dies while giving birth to their second son, Benjamin. And then lastly, Isaac 
dies. Jacob's entire world is falling apart. One close to his mother, his father, and the woman he loves more than anyone else in the whole world all die and are buried. Features of his life are disappearing one after another and he's having to make his own way in the world. The one blessing for Isaac is that his two sons are reconciled and are both with him when he dies. And together, in this touching note, at the end of the passage, we find that Jacob and Esau together bury their father. In the midst of all of this turmoil, it is only Jacob's connection to God that sustains him and keeps him heading in the right direction. My uh, brother is involved in the offshore industry up in Aberdeen and part of the offshore industry, not a job that he does, but part of that is um, saturation diving. Saturation diving is um, sending divers down to the seabed um, at such a depth that they um, need to be pressurized in order to, to survive to function at that depth and need to, to stay together in this uh, tiny little tin can basically on, on the, the, the bottom of the ocean floor that's pressurized to keep them um, able to come in and out and work at that kind of depth. It's an incredibly dangerous job and part of their work involves going out onto the ocean floor connected through an umbilical cord that shackles them in place and so um, the divers cannot leave the area that they are working in. They can't simply decide that they're just going to go off and, and wander across the ocean floor to Norway or, or something like that. They are tied to the area, the little station that keeps them alive. And for all that they are constrained, they are shackled in one place. That constraint brings them life. To simply cut them off, to be free to go ever, wherever they want and do whatever they want would result in their death. The freedom uh, that they have comes from being constrained and from being tethered in one place within the, 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 the parameters, as it were, of uh, the, the safe operating environment of um, the saturation diving equipment. The cost of being saved by Jesus is that we will be constantly connected to him just as Jacob is constantly connected to God as we see reinforced again and again in chapter 35. The constant visitations of God are to, to communicate to us that Jacob is connected to God. There is a, a back and forth that exists between them that enables him to, to live and to, to work and to flourish and to thrive for all that sin keeps presenting its problems to him. And so it is for us that we think of the Christian life and indeed of the Word of God as being a terrible constraint on our lives. We can't go here. We can't do this. We must do that and so on. And that's viewed entirely negatively by our society, isn't it? This is the great problem that we have as Christians, that we're, that we're told what to do and what not to do, and our world doesn't want any of that. And yet we find that through this constraint of what we cannot do and what we must do, we are given life. Prioritizing Sunday worship, daily worship, 
reading of Scripture, meditating on Scripture, prayer, through the refraining from engaging in certain activities, from watching certain films or TV programs, from not reading certain kinds of literature, from not engaging in certain sorts of activities, and so on, we find that our life with God is enabled to flourish and thrive, and that close communion with Him enables us to flourish and thrive in daily life with our family, friends, in our workplace, and wherever else it might be. Like the diver on the ocean floor who can only ever go so far, who can only ever do so much, we find that we are given life. Our life support, God himself, Far from inhibiting, hampering our journey through this life, through this world, and making it somehow lesser than everyone else's experience, actually enhances our life, blesses our life, enables us to flourish and thrive, even and perhaps particularly in the face of suffering and of trials. Look at these encounters that Jacob has that enables him to deal with the loss of everyone he holds dear in the world that is shaped and defined and driven his life up until this point. I don't know about you, but if you've experienced the loss of loved ones, you know that feeling that your history, your, your, the life that you have had is sort of slipping away somewhat. There's bits of you that are getting left behind on the road. And this is exactly what Jacob feels, and yet his close connection with God gives him more life and sustains him to carry on to walk in faithfulness with God and to flourish and thrive in life. It is a false economy to think that we can live in the world and live like the world and still receive the benefits of walking with Jesus. If we want to to cut off the, the, the cord and have our life support removed so that we are free to go wherever and do whatever we want, we are fools to think that our lives will be better for it. For all that we might be constrained as Christians. We are constrained in order that our life might be more abundant, more full, more focused on our God and Savior that we were created to glorify in the first place. And so this is why the writer of so many Psalms are able to say that God's Word is a blessing. It is sweeter than honey, that they meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, and it's a source of immeasurable encouragement and joy to them. It's because they know the the constraints, the, the boundaries, the controls that God's Word places on our lives, that God's law places on our lives, gives us life, enables us to be blessed so that we can cope with loss, with suffering, with trials, with temptations, and with difficulties. It's one of the great frustrations that we've all experienced, I'm sure, as Christians, that when we go through difficult times in life that we sometimes flee from God under the assumption that, that God has perhaps abandoned us or we can't understand why this is happening and so on. And so instead of running to Him for greater sustenance, care and love, we turn and we walk away because we just don't understand how we could even be a Christian in light of all that's gone on. And yet we find it is only in close communion with our God, that we will be able to be sustained through these times and it is through Christ that we find that communion comes. We are so much more blessed than Jacob was that we have in Jesus a perfect Savior that we can know and love and interact with, that we can read about in God's Word but actually relate to 
Because he is a person and not simply um, a book or words. We're so blessed to have Jesus and we must be committed to being uh, those who follow in his way. Those who are connected to him constantly. We find lastly in this uh, passage as we move into chapter 36 that our cost of following God, of being God's people comes in that sacrificial way Christ puts before us. That we must be committed to following in the way of Jesus. We find in chapter 36 a a detailed list of Esau's family and it's tempted for us to to gloss over uh, some of that and just move on because it's just a list of names. But if you um, are, are to consider this chapter, you'll remember that this is God's word given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for our blessing, for our building up, our challenging, our our encouragement, our training in righteousness. And as we consider these names, we recognize that there is purpose and value here. The chapter demonstrates that Esau is prospering. He's connected to God's family through his father, and so he will be blessed also, albeit not the the full blessing of the main family line, but he will be blessed regardless. And as the chapter ends, a small note is made that after Esau, his people, the Edomites, prospered such that they had land, wealth, power, and influence. We find uh, that they grew so much they needed a king over them to govern them and to rule them. And they ended up having kings long before Israel had kings. It might seem like a weird thing to mention uh, this until we remember where Israel is when Moses is recording all of this for them. Esau's people have had a land, they've had a family, they've had wealth, and they've had kings. And they have lived with all of these blessings. And where is Israel? Israel has none of that. They don't have a land to call their own. They don't have a a clear identity as a family yet. They certainly don't have any wealth to speak of apart from the wealth that they've taken with them from the land of Egypt. And they don't have a king. They have Moses as their leader, but that's it. They're wandering in the wilderness. They're caught between two lands. They own nothing, have nothing. And they certainly feel that they have no future at all. Perhaps God has just abandoned them. Perhaps God has left them. How could God love them after all their experiences? Maybe they should just go back to Egypt and forget the whole thing altogether. And Moses reminds them in that in pursuing these things that other nations have, that this is not what they are all about. The the blessings of God are great and will indeed come to Israel, but they're not to chase the blessings. They're to chase God. They are to be Israel, the one who strives with God, who wrestles with the Creator, who, who won't let go of Him regardless of what He's about to do to them because He is the one they want. And the blessings that will follow will surely be great, but only because they come from Him. They're about honouring God when it costs them everything to do so. They've abandoned everything and walked out into the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan and have nothing in order to pursue God. And Moses is reminding them of that by telling them about the story of Jacob. They trust and they obey because there is no other way for them to go, even when it looks like there might be. 
Even when they feel they ought to give up and lie down and just die in the desert because it's all come to nothing or turn around and pray that Egypt will take them back when they can't see a way forward. Even when they think they should, they could just be like Edom and set themselves up in their own land and take what is promised by force. Moses reminds them that they have all they will ever have by the grace of God alone. We find if we were to read um, on into Deuteronomy, the qualifications for kingship are not... um, military power, it's not wealth, it's not marriage to uh, particular women being well connected or, or anything else. It is through taking the law of God and applying it to their lives. The king was expected to take the law of God after his coronation and personally copy it out himself. So he has his own copy to read every single day, again and again and again. It doesn't matter how busy he is with other things, wealth, power, military, family, all of that comes second place to God's word. He gets up from his bed, he takes up the word of God and he reads it so he knows who God is and who he is and who he, how he's supposed to respond in that relationship so that he can lead his people and that they can be God's own. This is what God's people are, those who strive with God and they must be committed to following in his way. And this is what Christ calls us to as his own people today. We're going to celebrate around the table in communion shortly. And this is a picture of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf to save us from our sins. It's a picture that we remind ourselves with that we might be conformed more and more to Christ, that we would die to our old way of life and to the sins of this world and follow in this new way that we might be risen with Christ in His resurrection. It's a sign that we are committing to following in Jesus' way, regardless of the cost. As he died, we die. As he rises, we rise. As he glorifies God, so we glorify God. In every way, we want to be just like Jesus. And because of his work, and because of the indwelling Holy Spirit he gives us, when we trust in him for our salvation, we can be in so many ways like Jesus. Never perfectly. And yet always striving to grow in our maturity, in our uh, comparison to Christ. We must, as a Christian people, as a church here in 21st century Livingston, be conformed to the image of Christ. We must be committed to Christ constantly. We must be committed to following in Christ's way. This is the cost of being a Christian. And yet we find the constraints that these costs will place upon us are the means by which life is given to each one of us, not just to survive, but to thrive. And so I want to encourage you today to seriously consider the cost of following in Jesus' way, but to consider that cost worth it all in the end. And so follow with joy and with resolve and determination that you might live for Christ, to love him and serve him and glorify him, not just for a time, but for all eternity. Amen.